Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. For nearly a year, from 1922 to 1923, every Tuesday a small band of plucky engineers have made radio happen from a small hut in a small Essex village. 2MT Rittle was Britain's first and arguably most influential regular broadcast radio station. It helped spark Britain's radio boom. But now the big old BBC has come along, its work seems to be done. What then of its premier voice and the brains behind the operation, Peter Pendleton Eckersley? This time, 2MT closes down for good. Aww. And Peter Eckersley moves on to bigger and, uh, well, well, bigger things at a small enterprise called the British Broadcasting Company. You can hear their voices. You can hear from Tim Wonder and Jim Salmon and me here live from the green in Rittle as we toast 2MT Rittle and its final broadcast. The end of an era, the start of a new one. January 1923. Live slash pre-recorded from Rittle here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello, this is PK calling. PK calling. This is two Emma Tuck. Two Emma Tuck. This is two Emma Tuck calling. Yes, thank you, Peter Eckersley. Ah, he was here in Rittle, as I am now, this beautiful Essex village. It's a wonderful day. It's about 25, 26 degrees. And I'm recording this on Rittle Green, right by the Duck Pond. If you listen carefully, you might hear a quack. No, you can hear a car, but there are quacks going on behind me. And this is the show that we are raising a glass to the final broadcast from 2MT Rittle, Britain's first regular broadcast station, and possibly... Britain's most influential broadcast station. We featured it massively on episodes eight and nine, and ever since then, all the way until here in the, the mid-40s we're up to now, Rittle has been bumbling along every Tuesday night, sometimes mocking the BBC, sometimes having a go at Arthur Burroughs on Tuolo, and sometimes innovating, giving us the first radio quiz, the first radio play, plus all those moments of hijinks like Peter Eckersley impersonating an opera star, or not impersonating a female singer, but everyone thinks he is offending the railway companies and playing all sorts of gramophone records in all sorts of ways you probably shouldn't. They have no rules. They do what they want to do. And of course, they are lampooning 2LO with absolute ferocity and great delight of all their listeners. The Riddle story had come to its logical conclusion. It actually shuts down on the 17th of January, 923. But of course, it's given birth to this huge edifice that will become the BBC as we know it today. Ah, Tim Wonder there. So indeed, I'm here in Rittle. In fact, I'm here to hear Tim speak tonight at a talk on the British Broadcasting Centenary. So what better place to record this podcast, or at least the opening of it, here from Rittle? Now, don't forget, you can catch me on tour. I'm all over the land. I'm playing Peter Eckersley, in fact, in my live show, the first broadcast. Upcoming shows of Kettering, Worthing, St Albans, Bedford. You go to paulcarenza.com slash tour for the full dates. And actually, new dates and venues include Ludlow Fringe. If you're North Wales or Shropshire or the Northwest, come to Ludlow Fringe. Chelmsford, just two miles from here. I'll be here later in the year where radio began. So do come to the Chelmsford Show. And I'll be down in Somerset at Watch It, home of the Radio Museum. So you can see my show, the first broadcast. But you can also, while you're there, pop into the wonderful Radio Museum run by Neil Wilson. And he'll be on the show very soon. It's uh, a marvel of a place that he has there. And you can actually see right now a video tour that I did of that lovely museum. Link in the show notes. You can watch that now. Another video in the show notes is uh, a walking tour that I've done here in Rittle with Jim Salmon, friend of the show, Radio Ham. 
ham. Uh, we're called anoraks. Anoraks, <laughs> quite right too. Radio hams, amateurs. Two MT anoraks. So where are we? We're in Lawford Lane. We revisited the home of Two MT. We uh, retraced the footsteps from where the hut was, which is now a housing estate. Just the other side of that hedge would have been the Two MT hut. To where the pub was, which is now an Indian restaurant, where I'm going to go very shortly for my dinner. So we're going to have a little wonder, yeah. uh, essentially to the pub. Yes, yes. Except it's not to the pub. We can't go in there anymore. We trod where Peter Eckersley and team would have trod as they raced to the pub to plan the show each Tuesday and then back to the hut to broadcast. You could watch the video, but for a little taster, here's me and Jim where we think that Rittle Hut was. The Rittle Hut, where regular British broadcasting began, uh, out of the Marconi, uh, the research department. But what they would do is they would go to this pub at the end of their working day on a yeah. Tuesday and then plan this thing called broadcasting that they were asked, and they, and, asked to do. And I think it, it helped the fact that they probably would have had a fair amount of time. I guess they would have set the transmitter up in the hut yeah. and then walked up here uh, for their fish and chips and a, a few G&Ts, or yep. I'm sure a few other things as well. And I'm guessing they probably had an hour, a couple of hours maybe up here. Yeah. And um, so they were probably a bit more loosened up when they went back to their place <laughs> yeah, of work. To, I guess uh, so. And obviously we've got to suspend our disbelief a little that, you know, this is all, the houses are gone, the green's yeah. here. Yeah. But we th I thought it would be quite good to do the walk just to get a sense of the geography and the time it would take. Now, rather than stay for the entire audio journey, what we'll do is pop back to me and Jim on our little walk from hut to pub or car park to Pakwan restaurant as it now is. But we'll keep the timer running and we'll pop back in and see how we're getting along. You get a sense then for how long the journey is. Geography and history all rolled into one. And next to that Melba Court, and a little Thank sign here. Where Dame Nelly Melba never sat. <laughs> she'd never, she, she'd <laughs> never, never been here. here. She'd never come to Rittle. Um, but if you'd like to see the full video of this walk, the link is in the show notes. The way to the pub is that way, so we're going to yeah. keep uh, going that way. Meanwhile, what was it like at the time? Here's Peter Eckersley. I happened to be in the Marconi Company at the time. We inhabited um, a place called Rittle, uh, a hut, long, low hut for the long, low people. And um, we had a wireless transmitter, and we were eventually appointed to do this thing called broadcasting. I'm talking about regular broadcasting, and gee, boy, were we regular. We were, we were half an hour a week, half an hour a week, every Tuesday. Here's Peter Eckersley's right-hand man and his successor as chief engineer of the BBC, Sir Noel Ashbridge. Well, Captain Eckersley, of course, he was really the programme director. But the difficulty was that I was a sort of deputy programme director. And that was one of the great troubles, because I never knew when he was going to turn up and when he wasn't. If he turned up, it didn't much matter what I'd written down in the way of gramophone records, and it was mostly that. Uh, he simply got onto the microphone and that was that. A third member of the Rittle crew also actually went on to lead the BBC's engineering department, as well as Eckersley and Ashbridge. There was Cheery Toff and Boffin, maybe we call him a Toffin, the Honourable Rolls Win. There was a sort of scruffle round at about six o'clock on Tuesday evenings to try and find what bits of the transmitter McClarty and Kirk and Co had removed during the course of the week. And we found them and we put them back again. We then went across to a pub called the Cock and Bell, where in a short space of time we drank an immense amount of gin. Well, we then proceeded to produce the programme, and with the help of gin and or the most ghastly piece of fried fish, which was always stuck to the plate, we produced the programme of the evenings. We used to have dinner at the pub locally uh, before we did these transmissions. The transmission was at 8 o'clock, my memory serves me right, and at about quarter past 7 o'clock or that sort of thing, we went to this pub and... Uh, 
and, and, and ate our dinner. Let's get back to me and Jim walking from the Rittle Hut, as it was, to the Cock and Bell pub, as it was. We're walking up the lane. Yeah. But at some point, we don't know how many times, but they would have been walking down the lane with something on a trolley. Yeah, yes. (laughs) Potentially the the pub piano in a wheelbarrow or something like that, isn't it? Um, Which so, might have been quite easy to bring it down here. Yeah, this is, but as we're doing the walk now, yeah, it's been a bit more difficult. It it's a slight again. incline down here, isn't <laughs> yeah, there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So end of the work day, they're going this way, sober, yeah. hopefully, yeah. potentially. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to go around the corner yeah. and they find the pub. Yeah. They plan the Tuesday evening show. Yeah. There's a van coming. Yes, and uh, and then they <laughs> saunter back, maybe half oiled, yeah. on gin and fish and chips, yeah. made with a pub piano. Yeah. It's a bit formal, Mark there was a license that we were given. The power had to be limited to one kilowatt, was it? And that had to include the power that was uh, necessary for illuminating the or heating the filaments of the valve. But it took two kilowatts to do that already. However, we, <laughs> we still owe the Postmaster General a number of kilowatts. But uh, we went ahead, nevertheless. And that's how probably the first regular broadcasting station in Britain ever started. Just imagine, people who live on Melba Court in Rittle, who go to the Pakwan Indian restaurant, will be unknowingly walking in those footsteps that the first radio broadcasters made. And this is, was the pub, but it's now an Indian restaurant, isn't it? Yeah, it's called so, Pakwan. So there it's you go. It's got a very good reputation there, so yeah. it does some nice food in there. Um, and that's for a few years now being an Indian restaurant. So, uh, but we, you know, if you if you think back, you know, just uh, squint your eyes a little bit, just think, oh yeah, just yeah. imagine the house is gone. Yeah. Then this was the way, and they've even got a little green plaque there. Yes. To um, memorialise what was here a hundred years ago this year. And I think the old pictures on the front of the building there, you can see the white, the, the grey mm. colour there, and the wire hanging down. That was the old pub sign, and uh, okay. I think. I'm fairly sure on some of the old historic pictures you can see Cock and Bell looking up there. And uh, yeah. yeah, so that we've just done the walk. So there you go. So we'll leave it there. Yeah. Pub, hut, Chelmsford. Yeah. I'll go to the pub. And uh, two anoraks. (laughs) And two anoraks. There you go. So the 2MT story 100 years ago lived on. Ah, thank you, Jim, for the walk. You can watch the full video of that walk from the old hut to the pub, housing estate to restaurant, in the show notes. And just for patrons on Patreon, I filmed some other videos of walks from Magnet House to Marconi House on the Strand and a meander around the outside of Savoy Hill. Join patreon.com slash paulcarenza to see those videos when they land. And here's a thing I've just changed. Sign up at any rate and you get access to all of those videos from now on. £5 is the lowest level. You can join once, cancel straight away as far as I'm concerned, but it all helps to support this show. And hello and much gratitude to our current crop of Patreon matrons and patrons. We are ever so grateful too. Sean Jacks, Robert Godfrey, Tim Blackmore, Gene Baxter, John Hardman, Michelle Gersich, Adam Wynn Stanley, Matt Lacey, Keith Marsh, David Jervis, Andrew Deacon, Russ Anderson, Sarah Norwood Mewis, Mark Loveday, Dave and Jackie, Andrew Barker, Chris Toundrow, and Andrew Jervis. Do join these marvellous people. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. It helps keep me in books. Books like those of Marconi historian Tim Wonder. The new book is called 20 Riddle, uh, 1922 to 2022. The centenary of British radio broadcasting. It's the culmination of either two years or 38 years of research, depending on it, how you look at it. It's been great to revisit the story, which I last looked at in 2010. Obviously, a lot more research. Some great researchers working with you on your excellent podcasts. 
yeah, it's good to bring the story together, tell it in a slightly different way and really complete the loop of this amazing 10 months of uh, Station 2 Emma Tock at Riddle. Emma Tock. I think you've, you've probably explained before, haven't you, Paul, about why Emma Tock? Jim Salmon, whose website emmatock.com is a tribute to these radio pioneers. 2MT was their call sign. Uh, back in the day, there are different phonetic alphabets. And the one that Peter Eckersley and uh, many of the chaps in the hut were using was the, I think, the Royal Flying Corps phonetic alphabet. And M was Emma and T was Tok. So it's as simple as that. So rather than say two Emma T, they say this is two Emma Tok, Rittle calling. And I can't roll my R's, so I can't do that. <laughs> no, likewise, we need someone who can roll their R's. <laughs> exactly. This is two Emma Tok, Rittle testing. This is two Emma Tok, Rittle testing. Now, right now on our Facebook group, the British Broadcasting Century, do join. Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, has been cataloguing some of the press clippings from 100 years ago about 2MT Riddle, as the press reported it. Throughout 1922, it is week after week of press update about 2MT's latest innovative broadcasts. February the 14th, 1922, for example, that's the first 2MT Riddle broadcast, had Robert Howe singing the floral dance. That's the first performance on the first regular British broadcast, years before Wogan's cover version. Week two of 2MT Riddle, we know a little about thanks to the Chelmsford Chronicle and Burton Observer. And thank you, Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective. You see, the second week, actually, Peter Eckersley himself appeared on air a little earlier than we've said previously. We believed it was week five that Eckersley made his debut, that till that point he'd go home and have some dinner with his wife. But actually, no, week two, February the 21st, 1922, Eckersley sang, somewhat drolly, I expect, the opening song Lady Betty from Songs of Old London. Mrs Eckersley accompanied him on piano, and then a gramophone record was played, the cornet solo Softly Wakes My Heart. Actually, the programme material came from Arthur Burroughs, who was the chief publicity man at uh, Marconi House. And then another song by the Rittle staff, led by Eckersley's baritone. And then a record of Madame Clara Butt, who would actually sing live from 2MT Rittle later that year. It was a 25-minute broadcast. Over 5,000 radio amateurs listened in from across England. Week five, Eckersley went a little crazy on air, sparking a demand for radio sets. There may be some atmospheric... Going all of it, Kenny Everett. There may be some jamming. There may be some oscillation. Eckersley's programmes are the most extraordinary thing on earth. Sir Noel Ashbridge. Those of you who go back as far as that, and after all, an awful lot of you here who don't, will know that, of course, he was the forerunner of some of the radio entertainers who are so successful now. Except, of course, that all his stuff was ad-lib. A couple of months go by with these weekly shows. May 1922, 2MT is now competing with London 2.0. But 2MT continued, welcoming famous singer Lawrence Melchior, for example. Melchior, I think, had just been married and left his bride in Denmark, comforted with a crystal set. And he had the awful idea that the louder he sang, the more likely wifey was to hear him. Well, Melchior took a breath that sucked the windows shut. And he gave a bellow that shut the station down. Burst into flame. Later that month, guest singers included Isoldo Farrell. Thank you, Eddie Bowen, for that info. And Nora Scott the week after. Peter Eckersley's mock opera came on July the 11th. The first radio quiz was on August the 15th, £5 cash prize there on 2MT, and the first radio play on October the 17th. Oh yes, Serrano. Serrano de Bergerac. Rehearsed, presented, performed, modulated, 
and I think almost knocked off the air due to overmodulation <laughs> by one P.P. Eckersley. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Peter Eckersley and Rolls Wynn. The cast consisted of, of course, P.P. Eckersley. Serrano. Serrano. Uh, Marion Travers. Aggie. Aggie. Um, Dennis Ross. Yes. Uh, I, well, I think was the rustling leaves. <laughs> That's about as far as I was trusted. But what is most memorable about that, the way things, bearing in mind the way things are done now, was the rehearsal which took place in Deodora at tea time, <laughs> about an hour before it went on the air, when we solemnly handed round a spoon representing a Peel Connor microphone. Yes, yes. Um, the thing was hustled from one person to another, Yes. And so far as I remember, it actually went on the air, and I don't think the engine seized up that night. We did get through the... We got through with it. We got through with it. Pioneers, oh, pioneers. It was a success. It was a success that night. I mean, the words all went over. A month later, Eckersley was mocking the 2LO chimes. Ping, pong, ping, pong. You know, one of those things that hang up in concert halls with little different tubes. Uh, We thought we can't be outdone, and I remember we got all the scrap iron we could find in Rittle and beat it hard at the beginning of our thing. We were awfully precise too. At this point, 2LO was on several days a week versus 2MT's one show a week, meaning, as Eckersley said, We had plenty of time to listen for things which would give us material for our lampoons and skits. At one point, Burroughs and Tulo had to stop on a Tuesday, apparently to enable the Riddle station to carry out its usual programme without interference. Although, according to Eckersley, it was in order that Riddle should be more clearly heard laughing at them. But when Tulo became the first BBC station, two MT's days were numbered. But it took Peter Eckersley to close it himself, and it was when he heard the opera on January the 9th, day two of Britain's first outside broadcasts, that he was transfixed for three solid hours. Rigidly clamped by headphones, completely absorbed, oblivious to discomfort. You suddenly were in the atmosphere of Scotland Garden. You suddenly were conscious that this was music, that this had potentiality. Eckersley finally saw a point in what the BBC was doing. And it was from that moment, the first hearing of those opera broadcasts, that I personally suddenly felt, look, I want to be in broadcasting. This is something with a tremendous potential. 2MT had started regular broadcast radio, but what then? If it was just there to mock the BBC, would the BBC tolerate it? John Reith had no intention of letting them do that, so he was rather glad that Peter Eckersley asked him for a meeting. Brittle is a maverick. Eckersley and his team get increasingly, I think in Burroughs' eyes, difficult. The Marconi Company had also signed the part of the BBC agreement. They're a major shareholder now. Um... Uh, they're obviously doing well for patterns, and they didn't really want anything to rock the boat. So I think there's many factors coming together. Also, you know, John Reef, who will drive the BBC for the next 15, 16 years, realises he needs a wireless expert. Gary Allegan was Reith's 1938 biographer, and he quotes Reith saying, I remember Captain Eckersley's first visit. I had heard about him, heard about an individual who assiduously and regularly made fun of all that was done from Marconi House, from a transmitting station at Rittle, and who, one gathered, was something of a celebrity. There was some thought that one of the reasons the BBC might have started uncles and aunties was to really protect their staff from almost this cult of fame and publicity that Eckersley had experienced through 1922 to isolate them a little bit but also I also think that Reef liked to keep control of it all. I could not quite understand why he was allowed to be broadcasting at all but I had certainly heard a great deal about him 
So when he intimated his desire to call, I was quite intrigued. So Eckersley initiated that meeting. He must have, A, felt awkward about Riddle now the BBC had gone official, and B, since the opera, he craved joining them. That chief engineer post in particular was still vacant, since Mr R. H. White, the Marconi 2LO engineer, was offered it, but had turned it down, thinking this BBC thing a bit of a non-starter. Captain Eckersley's first visit to me was not about the possibility of his joining the BBC. He came to get my view as to what he ought to do with Rittle. When I said I thought he ought to close it down, he said it was the first time anybody had made any categoric suggestion, and he was very grateful. John Reith said of Eckersley, I expected some kind of ultimatum from him. It soon transpired, however, that he wanted one himself, and had tried to get it in various other quarters. He got it here. And a week or two later, the offer of the post of Chief Engineer to the BBC. Yes, a week or two later, and at least an episode or two's time as well. We're getting ahead of ourselves there. Eckersley later gave his side of that meeting. I found the BBC's chief executive installed in what was little more than a cupboard opening off an office in which the rest of the staff, about 15 people, were feverishly working. I was impressed by the way I was handled, and before I quite realised it, I'd promised to shut down Rittle, even though I had really no right to do so. Well, after all, it hadn't been his decision to start up to MD Rittle. He was ordered to, so it wasn't really his place either to close it down, but it had outserved its purpose. I thought vaguely that I should rather like to work for Mr. Reith. Eckersley is chalk and cheese to Reith. They are diametrically opposed in all factors, in experience, other than their military service, I guess, in First World War. But um, he needs someone who understands what radio is, what wireless can do. But any interview, any job offer was yet to come. For now, they had Rittle to close down. So 17th of January 1923, Rittle closes down with one last show for the fans. And one of the present day fans is Tim Wonder. In some ways, it's a sad end to this amazing story that started it all. But it's also inevitable. Rittle is a small village and a station, a small hut and a field. And it's 30, 32 miles from London. London is the massive city, as is Birmingham and Newcastle, with literally millions of listeners, all of whom can listen in a crystal set with perfect clarity and no interference from stations. But as we all know, on the 17th of January 1923, 2MT Rittle does indeed say goodbye to its listeners. Eckersley wrote, We said goodbye to the Rittle listeners, drinking their health in a glass of water, promoted to champagne by the sound of a pop gun. Ah, innovating to the last with one of the first radio sound effects. And Eckersley sang his signature tune for the last time. Eares, the concert ended, sad wells the heterodyne. You must soon switch off your valves, I must soon switch off mine. Write back and say you heard me, your distance and where and how. Hark for the engines failing. Wow, 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 wow. And on this one, Eckersley's engineering assistant, Rolls Wynn, added... See how the feeds are glowing, valves red and engines hot. You who have heard us weekly, now you won't hear a dot. And here, talking with Eckersley, is Rolls Wynn himself. Of course, people just don't believe, you know, that broadcasting really could have started in quite such a slap-happy way. No. Uh, no, no. And uh, don't you think that it had a certain something about it, nevertheless, um, although it was casual, although it was slap-happy, although it was all that... 
the people that listened to it probably had as much pleasure as anybody has had out of broadcasting oh, because of they were taking part in an adventure. I think you have to remember that for that period, from November to January, they're the only station to have legally, because their licence was not rescinded until January, share the airways with the BBC up until the advent of commercial radio to the 1960s. It's also no coincidence that the BBC licence to transmit or broadcast was formally issued a day later. The Riddle transmission stopped on 17th January 1923. The licence and agreement between PMG and BBC was dated 18th January 1923. The fine-tuning that I find fascinating, that by this point, the BBC licence hadn't properly arrived, yet Riddle was licensed. So does that mean that for the first two months, the BBC were the pirates, and that Riddle was technically, if you really took a legalistic eye to it, the official broadcaster? I don't know. I'm overthinking. It, it's a, uh, I love, uh, I love, I love the thought that BBC might be described as pirates. I shall <laughs> store that away for a later day. But yes, basically, Two MT's license was for regular scheduled broadcasts, which is if it's its place in history. The BBC broadcast was still being done, as had the original Chelmsford broadcast in 1920, actually under experimental licences. The Postmaster General had done a, a, a catch-all um, to cover it all up, but their formal licence to operate comes the day after Riddle leaves the airwaves. Clause 1 defined broadcasting matter as concerts, lectures, educational matter, speeches, weather reports, theatrical entertainment, and any other matter including news and other information from time to time approved by the PMG. And Clause 5 stated, The company shall transmit efficiently a program of broadcast matter to the reasonable satisfaction of the Postmaster General to the reasonable satisfaction of the Postmaster General, whatever that might mean. 18th of January, the newly licensed BBC had a board meeting, and by chance the chief engineer job was reopened at that meeting. No candidates yet. But on the way in, apparently Basil Binion, one of the board directors, bumped into one Peter Eckersley. What are the chances? I was walking towards the bus, going to Liverpool Street, and I suddenly said, Law, I'm going to tobacco. I turned back, I ran into a man, Basil Binion, who said, Law, you're just the man. I said, I know I am, but what for? <laughs> he said, would you like to be the chief engineer of the BBC? I said, well, I don't know why you people haven't asked me years ago. Now that's one version of the story. But it looks also like Basil Binion, rather than bump into Eckersley outside a tobacconist, actually wrote to him around then. Should you be in town, come and have a chat on an exceedingly important matter, which would also be of importance to you. Hmm. Binion and Eckersley were in fact old neighbours when Peter Eckersley was working at Brooklands at the end of the First World War. Either way, within a day of Eckersley closing down the station that mocked the BBC, he was now making steps to join that company, the target of his skewering. We'll have more of Eckersley joining the BBC in an episode or two's time. The birth of the BBC from Riddle onwards is a step change in social history. You know, for a thousand years, the fire has been the centre of family life. Now it's the glowing box in the corner with little tubes lighting the room. 
Tim Wonder's recent talk in Rittle, he launched his new book, 2MT Rittle, The Centenary of British Radio Broadcasting. You can get yours at 2MTRittle100.co.uk, limited print run only. Now, I was there at Tim's event and also there, I was sat with two granddaughters of Peter Eckersley himself. It was a joy to meet Alison and Caroline and CRH News had a short interview with them. We'll put a link to the full clip in the show notes. But here's a little taster of when CRH News spoke to Caroline and Alison Eckersley about their grandfather, Peter. My name is Alison Eckersley, and I'm the daughter of Miles Eckersley, who was Peter Eckersley's youngest son. My name is Caroline, Caroline Moyer. My mother was Joan Eckersley, who was Peter's daughter. Listening to Peter on with his radio thing, my father was just like that because he used to have concerts and things. This sort of bonkers, mad, zany, hysterical, completely out of control playfulness, which was very much uh, my father as well. For the full video, search YouTube for CRH News Radio City. The link is in the show notes. Ah, the Eckersleys back in Rittle. Only that day, Tim Wonder gave them a tour of the hut itself, the first time they'd ever been into the place where their grandfather made history 100 years ago. So with 2MT Rittle off-air, what then for Peter and his team? Well, the Rittle hut continued... Before Eckersley was to be swept up to BBC HQ for a job interview, there were a few days of normality in the Rittle hut. Eckersley noted, We settled down to normal routine. We had to design a broadcasting receiver, which Marconi's were going to sell to the public for listening to the BBC. Owing to considerable indecision in head office, we got our first knowledge of the requirements of performance of the receiver from a full front-page advertisement in the Daily Mail. As for 2MT Rittle, the station, though it's closed down, wasn't even noticed in some quarters. Wireless World magazine kept on listing its Tuesday concerts in the schedules for a few weeks after it had closed down. And a week after 2MT's final show, the Boston Guardian wrote, It seems like only yesterday since we had those occasional transmissions from Marconi House and Rittle's cheering music. One wonders how many of our loyal listeners in ever think about Rittle nowadays. Really, just for old times' sake, some of us will have to find 2MT some Tuesday evening at 8 to see if everything is still in order. It wasn't. One gets so used to switching over from London to Birmingham and on further north that we're apt to forget poor old Rittle, and Rittle used to be a godsend, so to speak. Well, too late. 2MT had gone. A memo was eventually sent out about its demise, although even that memo came a fortnight after the final broadcast, February the 2nd, 1923. Cessation of Rittle Wireless Concerts. And thanks to Tim Wonder and his many books on Term T. Rittle for this memo. Wireless amateurs and the first 100,000 broadcast listeners in will learn with regret that they will no longer be entertained by those inimitable burlesques and parodies from the Rittle Wireless station, which have been enjoyed so much each Tuesday evening during the last 12 months. The Rittle transmissions were inaugurated by the Marconi Scientific Instrument Company Limited, one of the associated Marconi companies, in February 1922, to provide British amateurs with material for experimental purposes which had not previously been available in this country, and they proved to be of great value to the 12,000 amateurs who were interested in wireless before the broadcasting boom set in. The original programme consisted of telegraphic signals for calibration purposes, followed by a musical programme. Listeners in throughout Great Britain 
have looked forward with pleasurable anticipation to the Tuesday evening entertainment by Riddle, but now that there is an abundance of telephony available from the broadcast stations, the Marconi Scientific Instrument Company considers that its enterprise has served its purpose, and that Riddle may rest upon its laurels. As for the next few decades of the Riddle Hut, well, Tim Wonder tells me what it had in store. No more broadcasting, but it was continuing its day work of research and development, and it secured its place in history a few times over yet. The birthplace of the hovercraft? And the Riddle Hut will continue because don't forget that, yes, 2MT Riddle shuts down, but the Riddle development site is going to be absolutely crucial for developing airborne wireless. Eccacy will leave within a month, but the rest of the team will stay there, some of them until 1925 when Noel Ashbridge jumps across, but also in terms of Edward Trump, he never left. Edward Trump was effective, was happy with his life. He enjoyed his family, enjoyed his hobbies, and he was happy to stay. But he was the one who married one of the daughters of the landlord of the Cock and Bell pub. Two MT enthusiast, my tour guide of Riddle, Jim Salmon. Edward Trump made a lot of his life in a very normal way. Maybe he didn't fly high in the way that PPE did, but he, I, I like I like people like Edward Trump. It's it's nice to hear a positive thing about a Trump now and then, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, yes, um, yes, yes, there's, yes. There's a nice moment at the end of, is it 1960, the, the recording of Peter Eckersley doing a lecture to the engineering staff. Noel Ashbridge is there as well. I think it's Ashbridge who mentions that literally the day before that, he happened to be passing through Essex and swung by the hut. It was entirely a coincidence, but it so happened that I arranged to go to Rittle yesterday for quite a different purpose than anything to do with broadcasting. There were, in the days that Captain Eckersley has spoken about, I think somewhere about eight of us there altogether, and now there are something like between three and four hundred. Curiously enough, the wooden hut is still there. It was there in which I uh, spoke to Trump, and who has been working there on almost the same kind of work for very nearly 40 years. The rest of the team are all there, pretty much. You've got Rolls Wynn. Yeah. Eckersley, yeah. Ashbridge are all there at this grand BBC celebration of engineering. But, yeah. you know, Trump is still there working away in yes. the heart. A life well spent and with, with good principles. I like that. So a massive man development worked on the Riddle site. And the site continues with many different subjects. I worked there from 83 to 88. We locked the gates and said goodbye to the site forever. So wow. 1919 to 1988. So I was actually the last person off the site. Well, at least the stories go on, and uh, you've been championing this story for, for many years now. How can people find more info on you and your books and what you're up to? Where do we send them to? That's very kind of you, Paul. So, um, new website, because it manages everything. So, 2mtrittle100.co.uk, really easy. If you just look up marconibooks.co.uk. Thank you for keeping on telling those stories, and thanks for joining us on the podcast, Tim. Well, that was Rittle, and I think it cannot be more sufficiently emphasized that that adventure, that pioneer adventure, was born in laughter, was nurtured in laughter, and died in laughter. As for Peter Eckersley joining the BBC, you'll have to wait a couple of episodes for that, because next time we have one last rogue non-BBC but licensed broadcaster. We think this was the only other radio station to legally share the airwaves with the BBC until commercial radio came along five decades later.
and this tiny extra non-BBC radio station arrives exactly one week after 2MT Rittle closes down. It only lasts a few days. It's an odd quirk of broadcasting history, but if anyone's going to report on it, this podcast will. The Daimler Motor Company, legally broadcasting from Glasgow for just a few days in January of 1923, demonstrating in-car radios. Hmm. Listen to us as you drive next time on the British Broadcasting Century. Before we go, though, don't forget I am playing Peter Eckersley himself and Arthur Burroughs on tour at the moment in the first broadcast, The Battle for the Beeb in 1922. See com slash tour for where and when you can find me. And do say hello if you listen to the podcast. Always nice to say hello, hello to a listener. Huge and vast thanks to Tim Wonder and Jim Salmon and CRH News and Alison and Caroline Eckersley for this episode. Links to Tim's books and CRH News are in the show notes. And thank you to all of those people once again for generally keeping on telling this wonderful, niche, largely unknown story. But you can share this story too by sharing this episode and what we put on Facebook and Twitter at BB Century. Do find us on those social medias and be part of the legacy of this marvellous tale. And next time you turn on the radio or TV, would you raise a toast? Water is fine. We can add the sound effect to upgrade it to champagne. To 2MT Riddle, to Peter Eckersley and team. Closing down for one last time. I do think that before administration and organisation overtook the BBC, there was a certain naturalness that although it was perhaps not so beautifully regulated, not so suave, so polished, so dressed in spats as it may be today, nevertheless there was a spirit that came over of people trying and of possibly not succeeding which to me, as a listener, is much more exciting than almost anything else. 2MT Riddle, February the 14th, 1922, to January the 17th, 1923. Well, well, good night, CQ. God bless you and keep you. I can't. God bless you. Goodbye. Good night. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain due to age, or some rights may belong to owners we know not whom. BBC content is used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. Oh, and we're nothing to do with this present-day BBC. This is a solo enterprise, so thank you for spreading word of this project. We are small, but we have an amazing story to tell. And we have some way to go yet. So we keep on telling it. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for one last non-BBC broadcast station from Daimler Motorcars and marvellous guest on the British Broadcasting Century.